So my daughter Casey is a college freshman. And if you listen to this podcast, you've heard of her in some of the advertisements for Royal Retros. And two days ago, we received a letter home that just made our week. And as a writer, it also made me incredibly proud. <laughs> Here's what Casey wrote. Dearest family, it hath been but a fortnight since we last spoketh. The revolution nears closer. I fear thine, which might striketh. But alas, what am I to do? I only pray for the safety of the family. The estate is in peril. Sustenance is scarce. I have but a loaf of bread in my quarters. The water is muddled with droppings and mirth. Secrets shall arise. I knoweth that Constantine cannot hold on much longer. The state of the country and my own survival are in your hands. I sense I may escape during a brief period on 9 June. Only with your help may I survive. Pray for my safe return. Yours, Lady Casey. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Brandon Lingle, an editorial writer and columnist with the San Antonio News Express. Brandon is also a 20-year Air Force veteran, and over the past few weeks, he's written powerfully on the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. This is episode number 263. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Brandon, thank you for... uh, Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. As I was just telling you, I um, I had an episode ready to go this week and I have not been able to get my mind off of the tragedy in Uvalde with the 19 kids. And one thing that bothers me about modern America is I feel like we move past things so quickly and you can already see it. And I guess that's okay in a way because what are you supposed to do? But it bothers me. And I started reading things you've written about the tragedy and related to the tragedy. And um. Before I get into that, you seem personally angry about this from your writing. I'm not going off of any anything we've talked about. You seem particularly mad about this or particularly bothered by this. Mm, maybe not more than the average person, but you are regional. You're in Texas. You're an hour and a half away. Am I misreading that or is there something there? No, I, I think you're you're right on. I mean, how many times do we as a country have to keep going through this? There's simple things that that politicians and and all of us can do to to you know not eliminate the risk but lessen it certainly. So you, I feel like you come from this all with a very interesting point and a point that gives you a lot more gravitas than someone like myself, which is you spent two decades in the Air Force. Uh, you were in Iraq. You were in Afghanistan. You were in Korea. You are a veteran, and. Yeah. It seems like oftentimes you have people who weren't veterans, uh, specifically in this case, guys like Greg Abbott, guys like Ted Cruz, guys like Donald Trump, saying basically how important guns are, how everyone has the right to, you know, the Second Amendment is basically absolute. Um, What does your military experience give you in regards to writing about the issue of gun violence in America? Yeah, so... In the military, I mean, there's a lot of safeguards for weapons. Uh, there's training, there's vetting, there's a lack of access. 
it's not like on a on any military base all the soldiers are just carrying their weapons around um other than in like war zones so so I guess I come from this world of of uh, safety consciousness and 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 thinking about mitigating risk, and 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 now I live in a state with politicians that are like, oh yeah, any eighteen year old can can have an AR fifteen. Um, we, you know, it's it's pretty much wide open. Anybody can carry concealed weapons. Uh, they have this thing called constitutional carry that that they covered uh, or that they approved last year, and. Uh, Gosh, you know, I was I was sitting at that press conference um, with Greg Abbott the day after the shooting, and uh, and Beto stood up and started um, asking him what I thought was a very reasonable line of questioning and and uh, you know conversation and and those you know Abbott and Cruz and all those guys just pointed fingers and called him names. The mayor of Uvalde called him a name and ushered him out. And I just don't understand why we can't have a conversation. Um, and I, I'm, I'm doing a column right now about, I think that there's something changing uh, with, with the veteran community right now. I think that, that we're seeing a lot more veteran voices starting to chime in here and, and say that, that there is room for some, some reasonable gun safety laws. I'm going to, I'm going to go way out of order here just because this, this entered my yeah, head. Yeah. It's cool. <laughs> You're a veteran. Um, I'm from New York. I'm a born and raised New Yorker. And I'll just use this as an example because he's, he's always a prime example. If you're from New York, you don't dislike Donald Trump because he's conservative, because he actually would never was conservative until he decided to run for president. You right. dislike him because you view him as a con man, right? You just see him as a con man. You know what he is. He's a con man. You've seen it a million times before. I feel like if you're from New York City, you understand the type. You've been exposed to it. You get it. He's a guy. He's no different than the guy in the corner. Uh, if you walk through certain uh, tourist areas in New York City, you'll see people at the shell games and tourists gather around and they always get suckered for money. He's that guy. He also like he's never served in the military. He had five deferments from the military. He said he has a carry a permit to carry, but I've never seen it. I'm sure he doesn't. Why do the military, if you look at the numbers, uh, veterans and enlistees kind of flock behind him. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And uh, I was talking with a guy about sort of the politics of of uh, of the gun discussion the other day, and and I think maybe this this is sort of a similar phenomenon with uh, with Trump is is you know guns have been sort of turned into this hugely partisan issue, and if you're in the military, you worry about. Um, the perception of being political. You can't be political if you're still in. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of veterans may still have that sort of sensitivity to, uh, you know, sort of be conscious about how they're being perceived politically. Um, and I know that I've been experiencing that on the, on the opinion side of the paper. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I would say that the veterans are not a monolith and, I, I think that there's a silent majority of veterans that that are probably not thrilled with with the way Trump talks and are, are interested in some sort of, you know, conversation about gun laws. Do you think people like do you think guys like um, like Governor Abbott, guys like Senator Cruz? 
truly, truly believe what they're saying? Or do you think they're reading the pulse of the state you live in? Yeah, I mean, I think look at look at what time of year it is. I mean, the elections are going. I I think that I don't, I'm, I'm not a politician, um, but from where I sit, it looks like, you know, a, a political calculus. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've heard and there's been reporting that, that Abbott had tried to do some some different things in the past and, and it just gets shut down um, with the Texas legislature. Yeah, so. You wrote a, a great, great piece, uh, June 5th, for NRA Conventioneers, Uvalde was a world away. Uh, the dayline was Houston. You went to Houston three days after the Uvalde school shooting. Uh, the Avenida de las Americas here emboldened, uh, embodied the national divide over guns. In the George R. Brown Convention Center on the Avenue's south side, the National Rifle Association held its annual meeting and hosted exhibits. A north side protesters stood in the Texas heat with signs yelling and chanting for reform. Temporary barriers and fencing on both sides of the street created a militarized zone between the different ways of thinking. In the middle, the street remained open to vehicles as dozens of police officers on foot, four-wheelers and horses milled about. Uh, and you walked around the convention, the NRA convention, and you were there. Um, did you pitch this idea, first of all, or was this assigned to you? How did this come to be? So... You know, the, the week of the shooting was was sort of a a, a blur. Uh, the you know, as the news unfolded later, and I mean, throughout the day on the twenty fourth, it just kept getting worse and worse. And and so, um, a lot of people from the newsroom went went to the town on the twenty fifth, and and I did too. And and we all knew that the NRA convention was going on. So it was sort of a sort of a half suggestion from my editor that I jumped on. So yeah. And what did, what were you looking for? You're walking around the NRA convention. You know what it is. It's not, you're not going to find peace, love and understanding. You know, like, what do you, what are you seeking as you walk yeah. around? I mean, it just seemed like such a, such a, such an odd thing to have in the state after, after that carnage. And, and, you know, I, I hear all the business, you know, uh, the business reasons why you can't cancel a, whatever multi-million or hundred thousand dollar, whatever, all the contracts, you know, but, but I don't know. It was just, uh, it was surreal walking into this thing because it's impressive. I mean, it's uh, these things, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, so what I was looking for, I was just looking for, I don't know. I've just been thinking a lot of, and I'm sort of just riffing and rambling here, but uh, you know, it's the elephant in the room. Nobody's talking about it, but um, actually, let me rewind on that. It's uh, it's just tone deaf, right? Like it's like I don't know. It it just just seems weird. Um, and the uh, the convention, at least, and maybe I was looking for it, but it just seemed like a lot more AR fifteen semi automatic rifle assault type weapon stuff versus you know just target shooting and, and sportsmanship i guess are you walking through the hall with a media credential around your neck <laughs> yeah, so so once we decided to go um i i went to the to the nra's you know media credential request site and it's it said hey credential you're past the deadline but the thing was still working so i put my name anyway 
in and uh, the contingency was if, if I didn't get media credentials, I, I would pay the 25 bucks and become an NRA member, um, which is the other option. Uh, but, but I rolled into the press room and, uh, and my credentials were good, but everybody, everybody's walking around the, the convention with these sort of black lanyards and it, you know, with the NRA, but the media, they were bright green lanyards and it said press with these big letters. And, and so, so definitely stood out. I tried to tuck it in a little bit, but yeah, it probably stood out. Did you find anybody said anything? I was going to say, you didn't find anyone being sort of dismissive or, People people are cool. I mean, um, the one, the part that it didn't get me into was the the speeches. So I had to, I had to sit in the, in the press room to watch Abbott and, and all of that stuff. So, right. You wrote, uh, you wrote in a piece, the calm well-planned convention felt like one of those brief moments of obliviousness after the last mass shooting. And just before the next, when the national wounds start to scar over, the trauma begins to fade and life goes on for the rest of us. But reality loomed everywhere outside. You could hear and feel it in the screams and chants in the air across the Avenida de las Americas, past Discovery Green Park, across the United States, around the world. Earlier in the day, thousands attended the rally at Discovery Green, listening to politicians, parents of past shooting victims and activists calling for change and common sense gun reform. It's time for us to stop. Uvalde was right after Sandy Hook, Parkland, Santa Fe High School, said Beto O'Rourke. The time for us to stop the next mass shooting in this country is right now, right here today. When you write, when you report uh, a piece like this and you are uh, an editorial writer for a newspaper, are you trying to sway people? Hmm. Yeah, that's a tough one. I don't. So um, I guess on the opinion side, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm, I don't know. I don't know what to say to that. Well, when you're writing, are you thinking, are you thinking like, what are you, when you sit down and write, all right, you wrote a piece, want to carry weapons, do it like the military. This was an editorial you wrote. Um, You wrote, one go-to argument some Second Amendment proponents cite against stronger gun safety laws is how our nation trusts 18-year-olds in the military to handle weapons of war. The thinking goes something like this. Since 18-year-olds can vote and serve in the military, they should also have the right to own an assault rifle too. Then you put... No mention of drinking, renting cars, or how the uh, how the prefrontal cortex is still developing. <laughs> We've heard this argument in the aftermath of the Uvalde massacres, in which an 18-year-old gunman purchased a pair of AR, uh, AR-15 rifles and massacred 19 children and two teachers. So let's talk about how the military handles weapons. This is actually really, really freaking good. Yes, the government does trust young people in the military with weapons, but that's not the whole story. Unlike in the civilian world, the military vets people, oversees training, and limits access to weapons. Before anyone in the military handles a weapon, they endure aptitude testing, a physical exam, mental screening, a background check, a fitness assessment, and a drug test. They've also tested that they don't have a misdemeanor, felony, domestic violence conviction. Uh, on and on and on. Yeah. It's a really passionate, powerful, what the hell are we doing essay. But when you yeah. write it, I'm actually in your brain, literally when you're writing, are you thinking I'm trying to persuade or are you just thinking I just really want to write a good essay? <laughs> no, I mean, when you when you put it that way, it sounds like, yeah, I mean, I we need to change. So I guess so. Yeah, I I, I mean, it's it's insane to me that, that we have free reign on on these things. But so many other 
dangerous tools and chemicals are, are legislated and, and uh, limited and restricted and there's warning signs. I mean, so, so yeah, I guess so with this probably, um, you know, my, we have twin boys who are 18 now and, and they were the same age as the kids at, uh, at Sandy Hook. And I, and I was in the air force then. And I remember when that happened and it, we were in Virginia at the time. And, and I mean, I thought for sure things were going to change in our country after that one. And, and here we are. Yeah. Do you think things will, do you think for sure things will change after this one? Sadly, I don't think anytime soon. And who do we blame that on? Is it politicians? Is it us? I, I, I mean, so, so at the NRA convention, uh, their, their exec, uh, Wayne LaPierre was saying, we need to get back to a time where people take personal responsibility or, or something, some, something like that, you know, where, where people take personal responsibility for their actions and, and basically, you know, put all this on, on, uh, on the gunman. Um, but, but I mean, gosh, we, I feel like we've, uh, we've sort of accepted, you know, this, this carnage for, for the right to, to have whatever kind of weapon we want. And, and so, I mean, yeah, if we have to vote, we have to have an honest conversation about it. And I think that's the problem is, you know, our our politicians don't have an honest conversation about it right now. I actually don't even get it. I swear to God, I've had this talk over last week with my wife several times and friends different times. Like, you're Ted Cruz or you're Wayne LaPierre or whoever you're a Democrat taking, you know, who's, who's kind of, you know, in a conservative district, you see these things happen. So you just saw this happen. 19 people were killed. The guy was 18 years old. He bought the gun legally because of a law in Texas passed by Greg. He was able to buy this gun legally. He walked into a school. He shot people. Um, I don't understand why people are so reluctant to change their minds on an issue, even slightly, or admit maybe I was wrong on this or like, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you would say, we can't do anything about guns. Guns are off the table. That's a hundred percent off the table. We can't do anything about that. I don't even everything else, but we cannot touch that. Yeah. I mean, you cover this more than I do. Like, I don't, are these people just insincere? Are they truly, do they truly buy in? Like, I don't get it. I actually don't get it. It kind of hurts. Yeah. it hurts my head too. And I don't get it either. And, you know, one thing I've been looking at is, uh, you know, there are a lot of military veterans in Congress now, especially here in Texas. There's a lot. Uh, one of them I went to school with and, but, and I, I really see, you know, military people in Congress, they, they could be a bridge to something better here, but I, I see no appetite for it. And, it's almost like they just double down on the, oh, well, it's not the guns. It's, it's everything else. Frustrating. And, you know, I mean, so instead of, of taking care of, of the things that are, you know, the, one of the root causes of this thing, we're, we're talking about, you know, uh, I guess Dan Patrick just said that he wants to buy like bulletproof shields for classrooms. And, you know, we do, we, we're, we're buying like this, this war equipment, uh, bulletproof shields. We do all these drills. Some research says that like these 
active shooter drills traumatizes kids and um and, you know all the tourniquets and and all that stuff like man i it's sad that our kids have to think about that stuff i mean it's literally as if someone is walking around with a hose everywhere and he's spraying everyone with water well what's the solution to this you know we need more umbrellas we need more no we we need more raincoats we need more raincoats that will stop this guy from spraying everyone with a hose we need more rain wait there's a way we we can all be in a building and we won't let the water in the building that will stop the guy from spraying i mean it's so batshit crazy it's 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 almost comical if it were not people dying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't know what the way ahead is. I was talking to a guy the other day and uh, a retired army colonel who had been a, a battalion commander and, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan and all that. And, and he said when he took command, you know, he was losing more men or more people to suicide than, than combat. And so they were looking at, you know, sort of the statistics and the, the things that were, were at play. And, and, you know, a lot of them, uh, it's just super easy access to guns, you know, loaded guns sitting on your, on your dresser versus uh, unloaded gun locked up in a safe. I mean, even that little bit of time, and I, you know, I'm not an expert on that, but just hearing that anecdotally uh, got me to thinking. And so, yeah, I don't know. No more hoses. No more hoses. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, you have a very unusual background for a journalist. So, you know, you're an editorial writer, uh, editorial writer, columnist in San Antonio, but you're a 20 year military vet. Um, not many of my peers are military vets. How did you actually go from serving for two decades to becoming a journalist? Yeah, that's so I was interested in, in journalism. Um, as a kid at writing and, and photography as a kid and, and freelanced for some paper. I grew up in Southern California, freelanced for some papers before there, or I mean, freelance for some papers when, uh, you know, through high school and whatnot. And, uh, um, sort of came to a crossroads to either go to the military or, or pursue photojournalism. Um, and I ended up doing the military and you Why? Know, for a while, um, I don't know. Um, no. Uh, so I grew up, I grew up near an air force base called Vandenberg air force base, uh, in central California by Santa Barbara. Uh, that was, that was really influential. Um, sort of being around that, uh, when I was a kid, uh, we, a friend of the family graduated from the air force Academy and we went to her graduation and it was in 1991, right after the Gulf war. And, you know, it was just sort of this, uh, you know, very, very, uh, impressive experience for me as like an eighth grader or whatever. Um, and, and so it just sort of became this goal that, that I was interested in and, and working toward. Um, and so, uh, yeah, for a while I thought I was going to be a pilot, didn't get through pilot school, or I mean, I went there to, to be a pilot, didn't get through pilot school and, and sort of changed, uh, trajectory. Um, but at, at my university, at the Air Force Academy, um, I, I had some, some really good professors uh, in in my English classes and had some, got to do some creative writing classes and it really got, got me started on writing um, and ended up in public relations, military public relations after, after flying. And so I, I got into that because I was like, Oh, I'll be able to do some creative stuff, maybe write and, and uh, do different things. And, and as it turns out, you know, 
PR writing is not, <laughs> not, not uh, maybe the most fun. And and uh, got the opportunity to go back to the Air Force Academy to teach in the English department. And they paid for me to go get a master's in English um, and did that. And then it was this sort of just a really cool community of, of uh, creative people in the middle of the military. And uh, we were pushing each other to publish and, you know, as military people, you know, it's not like I can comment on policy or politics or any of that stuff. So we, we ended up, you know, my buddies writing fiction and, and short stories and a couple novels Um and, and I was doing all these weird essays, these weird personal essays, and, and it just sort of kept the creative juices going and uh, started talking with, with people in uh, journalism um, when I was coming up on, on retirement. And uh, a guy that I that? had, so I retired in 2020. Okay. Yeah, a guy I had embedded in Afghanistan, uh, Ben Brody, he's a photographer, um, recommended Report for America. Um, it's a it's a nonprofit newsroom that puts journalists in in uh, local newsrooms across America, and uh, applied for that and got selected. And I'd already been talking with the Express News folks, and uh, so it all worked out. And I started on the business desk at the Express News for for my first year there. Did you know what you were doing? No, <laughs> I'm sure my I'm sure my first editor probably got got tired of calls and questions and and whatnot. But I just sort of went with it and it was a good time. So it's well, what was fun. the adjustment? I mean, I always find it interesting when people enter sort of this world's relatively late. You know, most of us, yeah. our first newspaper job is 22 years old, you know, at least, you know, in our age group. Um, yeah. What was the learning curve like for that? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was both a steep learning curve and, and completely freeing at the same time. So, um, you know, I've, I've sort of shed this, the, the, the sort of brittleness of the military, I think. And, and, uh, you know, just this, you know, being super conscious of, of, you know, who might think what about you and, and, uh, you know, all the, the BS meetings and nonsense, um, for years and years. And that's a lot of stress and, and the military lifestyle, you know, you just sort of, you deal with the stress and and uh so so being out of the military has been just sort of amazing and, and figuring out what i actually like and don't like and and care about and don't care about and and uh and so on the on the with the paper i mean it's been amazing the editors have just sort of given me my beats and and let me go where they've taken me so wait does he does the regimentation of the military like I remember, I'm one of my best friends. He went, we went to high school together, and he went to the Naval Academy. Oh wow! Okay. And when he, when we said our goodbyes after high school, he walked just like me, kind of slouched over. And when I saw him after he graduated, he was perfectly straight, made his <laughs> bed beautifully, and he was just this machine, you know. And the regimentation—I mean, we talked about the regimentation. Yeah. Does the regimentation that you learn in the military? lend itself to journalism or is it something you actually have to overcome in the way of thinking? No, I, I think it, I think it helps a lot. Um, in certain, certain things, um, you know, in the military, 
you know, you have to be a little bit conscious when you're, when you're speaking truth to power, right? You know, <laughs> a younger, lower rank person isn't going to call the general out or, you know, but uh, as a journalist, you have to be able to ask these hard questions of, of, uh, you know, important people and, and, uh, you know, sort of see where, where things go. Um, I don't know. I think uh, sort of the, some of the, uh, you know, the, the organization skills and, and, and sort of the ways of thinking has, has helped me um, and, and building networks and different things like that. Um, I don't know. When I look at the, at the Academy, I think sometimes it may have, may have backfired on me because a sort of a free spirit kid and, and my parents were, um, you know, pretty much let me do what I wanted as long as I wasn't getting in trouble. And then you go to an institution like that and they, and they lock you down and impose all of this, this stuff on you. And so for, you know, these are smart people and, and there's all of this sort of artificial restrictions. And and so I didn't do too well with that, but (laughs) you, um, you said you went to Uvalde the day after the shooting, correct? Yeah. So I have a lot of questions about this. Number one, I've covered, I've certainly covered tragedies in my day. Yeah. And going to the scene of a tragedy or going to a funeral, covering a funeral of someone who died, it always feels a little bit icky to me. I'm not saying it should, but for me personally, it's a weird thing. You know, it's a weird thing to show up and ask people about something hard, the worst thing that ever happened to their community. I'm here with my recorder and I'm going to talk to you about it. Um, what did you go there looking for and what was it like when you showed up? Yeah. Um, so to be honest, I, I, I was just going with an sort of a, a blank slate trying to, to see whatever I could see. Um, you know, driving out that way, you go through a bunch of these little towns and, you know, I noticed that, that the flags were all half staff on the, on the way out there. Um, it's halfway between San Antonio and the border with Mexico and these little towns had their flags at half staff. And, and I was thinking about, you know, in another year, these flags would be this way for Memorial day, not because we just lost 19 kids and, um, two teachers. And, and I was, um, you know, that got me to thinking a little bit about how our country is more comfortable with, with, uh, losing kids in classrooms to assault style weapons than we are with losing uh, troops in combat. And, and that's a sort of a weird, weird realization, but um, yeah, I mean, it was the day after and, and things were, were still a little, little chaotic Um, went by the big sort of reunion center and there were, there were still families working their way through that and, um, and some media and then at the school, I mean, you know, it's a, a little neighborhood and, and they had the, the police cordon, you know, way out. And so, I mean, the, the media uh, swarm was was intense and, you know, just traipsing all over everybody's yards and different things like that. So, um, but I haven't been back since since that day, but as it's gone on, um, there's been more and more sort of accounts of 
you know, police threatening to arrest reporters. And um, over the last couple of days, they've, they've had a, uh, it's a, it's a biker club that's uh, defenders of the children, I think is what it's called. And they've been sort of blocking media. Um, so, so I, I feel like it's getting a little, little more tense, but I, but I haven't been back. Uh, it's just the vibe I'm getting from the newsroom and, and some of the notes I'm seeing from, from people. This may be a dumb question because we are both journalists like you. So you show up the day after and there's a swarm of reporters there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're all there and you're all looking for this thing. You're all trying to capture this thing. Um, are we as a profession right in going about it that way? And I'm not saying we're not. I don't really have the answer because I've done it too. Like, yeah. Or are we. Yeah, yeah go ahead. I don't know. No, go ahead. Well, I just always think it's interesting how, like, you know, like, um, all right, example, I cover sports and there'll be like some athlete will do something and 200 members of the media will show up. Right. And we'll say, how are you dealing with the pressure? But we actually are the pressure. Like we're the reason there's pressures because there's 200 of us. So it's almost like 200 reporters show up to a small town where there's a shooting we're actually changing the story by our very presence of being there. And I'm not saying it's wrong or right. I just don't know. Right. There. Yeah. I mean, what's the, uh, uh, there's something like, you know, it's like anything when the camera goes on, it's changing whatever is happening. And yeah, I don't know what the right answer is. Um, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I know that, that there's a little town, I mean, a little paper in that town that, that will, that will stay there and, and keep reporting on it. I know that, that the San Antonio people will continue reporting on it. Um, I suspect that it's starting to thin out already, the big swarm. So, you um, you wrote a piece for the American Scholar back in 2018 that you were kind enough to send me, uh, called "Remembering Sutherland Springs: A Chronicle of a Mass Shooting and Its Aftermath." And here's how fucked up this country is. Sutherland Springs, 2017, 26 people were shot to death during a church service. Another 20 were wounded when 26-year-old Devin Patrick Kelly opened fire with an assault rifle. I don't remember this happening. That's how messed up. Oh, you're kidding me. I don't remember it. It's kind of like when they say, like, you'll hear about, remember the murder of ex-African-American person by police at some town? And I'm like, which one was that? Was that Baltimore? Was that St. Louis? Was it New York? Was it Chicago? After a while... You know, it's hard to, it's just hard to remember these all. So you wrote a piece and you basically did almost like a, um, a chronicle of how the days and month that followed and what a community went without. I'll just read a little bit. Uh, you, you did uh, November 11th, 2017. From the north, I crossed the limestone green Guadalupe River and passed grazing horses, crumbling barns, cattle on RV Park, Good Luck Road and a Sweet Home Road. Words from the mouth of Flannery O'Connor's misfit come to mind. No pleasure, but meanness. That's pretty good. 10 miles from the church mm-hmm. at the corner of 539 and Sandy Elm, there's still evidence that the shooter died here. Orange spray paint highlights where his car's tires left the pavement. Pink marker flags show the vehicle's path and resting spot in a field dotted with hay bales. But the barbed wire fence has already been repaired. Soon the rain will wash away the paint and someone will pull the markers. A father plays ball with his son within view of the crash site. Further on, a man jockeying his riding, uh, his riding mower and the University of Texas flag flies over the pasture filled with massive longhorns. I catch a whiff of crude oil of crude and past historical markers for Linney Oil Field, Holly Cemetery, and finally Pat Higgins Grass Farms. 
then over Caballo, uh, Cibolo Creek, up a small hill, and I'm in Sutherland. The day's dark, and it's raining just enough to notice. One new vehicle, one news vehicle remains. The chapel lights shine against the ashen sky. An industrial fan stands in the doorway. Tomorrow, the church will reopen as a memorial. Um, it's beautiful, like beautiful writing, like mm -hmm. so beautiful. Um, what were you trying to convey, and what were you looking for in this one? So the Sutherland one, um, we had just moved back to San Antonio maybe a year, uh, within a, the year or so. And, uh, and it sort of, it reminded me of how Uvalde unfolded. It's a beautiful day. You hear like an initial report of something and, and, you know, you sort of have this reaction of like, well, I hope it, you know, it's not going to be that bad. Like, you know, and then as it, it unfolds, it, just gets nastier and nastier. And that's, that's what happened uh, with Sutherland and uh, our, uh, our kids go to a high school that, that plays some of these little, little farm towns. So I was familiar with that little town. In fact, we had just passed through there like a day or two before going to some kids volleyball game or something. And so the proximity of that one is the one is, is what really got me. And and at the time I was in the Air Force and this thing had a big Air Force tie uh, because the the gunman had been in the Air Force and got discharged from the Air Force, had problems. And for whatever reason, all that stuff didn't make it into the, the record that would have prevented him from buying the, the rifles. And, and so, um, so, I mean, I was writing that thing as, as, you know, a, a witness and, and, uh, you know, just somebody living close by. So I was curious just to sort of see the, you know, see how that community was handling it. And, and, you know, the impression that I got is that community says, yeah, well, we need more guns. And, and, uh, you know, they talk about it in terms of, of how evil came and, and, uh, and they had the, the oath keepers there protecting the, the church for a little while. Um, it's just sort of a really weird, weird scene. And so I, I, I went back a few times just sort of to, to see how it changed, what, what was happening. I mean, uh, conspiracy people harassed these folks and, and, you know, called it a false flag. And, and, uh, so, and, um, yeah, I mean, and it seems like, I mean, that was a long time ago. I've never asked a veteran this, but I'm going to ask you. I struggle. I've struggled for the past four or five. Like I used to love July 4th, like love July 4th. It was one of my favorite holidays. I don't feel the same way anymore. I just, I don't, I struggle with it. I really do. I look at the country right now and I'm hurt. It actually hurts me because I freaking love America. Yeah. And I wonder for you, like, you know, we have a legitimate crisis going on where, Someone is refusing to admit he lost an election he lost. And we have millions of people who believe he's telling the truth. And we have guns everywhere. And we have a Supreme Court that has no longer has the trust that it used to have as, a, as an ultimate authority. Um, are there still reasons to feel good about America? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, gosh, still patriot, still love the country. Um, you know, the, the hope for democracy is still there. Uh, you know, I, 
yeah, but, but we, we just need to, I feel like we need to, you know, it's the, the fringes of both sides of the conversation are, are, you know, what's, what's holding us all back. It's the people in the middle need to, to be able to just have a conversation and, and look forward. You know, what kills me. I will say I was in Texas uh, last week for 10 days working on a story and I was interviewing people it was unrelated to politics, but I was interviewing people who I shared nothing in common with politically. And I saw their Facebook pages and they were, you know, let's go Brandon and blah, 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 and all that stuff. Right. And I was talking to them about a tragedy. I was not talking to them about politics, but at some point I would say, you know, like I saw your Facebook page and I just think like, and you've probably seen my Facebook page by now. I'm saying to them, if we could just freaking sit down and have a slice of pizza and some beers or some sodas or whatever, we could hash out 95% of this crap or at least be civil and understanding about it. And that right. kills me the most. It rips me up. Totally. I'm, I'm sure, you know, we all share more common ground than, than we know or, or would admit. And uh, I think that's you. No, you're good. And so when I, I think of like, you know, politicians that are, you know, they're always bashing the media and and they, they'll only talk to, you know, you know, the the, the media outlet that, that represents their political viewpoint. It's just I don't know. I, this is being on the editorial board of the paper has been really interesting because we talk to all the all the candidates, any candidate who will talk to us, we'll talk to them. And, you know, how many Republicans talked with us? think one or two and and uh one guy that talked with us uh, was running for a state office and said look like i, I don't have a problem talking with you guys um and and i want your recommendation but it will hurt me politically and you know the the there's a a, a huge demographic in america right now that that doesn't trust any media oh but it's funny because they trust they trust their media. Like, that's what's weird. They trust, trust their, their media. They trust their media, right. <laughs> it's crazy. I always say, like, so I'm, I'm very liberal and I'm very pro-choice, right? Yeah. But someone's like, look, man, I just think abortion is murder. I actually think it's murder. I think it is killing a living thing. I think it's wrong. I can understand that. And I think anyone should be able to understand that. That is an under... I always say to people in my world, I'm like, that is an understandable position. It doesn't mean you have to agree with it but it doesn't make someone crazy to feel like it's actually like you can make that argument. And yeah. if someone's like, look, I think there should be X waiting period for guns. It just doesn't make sense. So you just, that's an understandable position. And in fact, yeah. we just don't listen to other people's positions because we're so dead set in our own and all we're being fed is our own material over and over again. Right. It's maddening. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, at that, you know how protests are. I mean, a lot of it is, is, is people, you know, like, so it's sort of weird how the NRA thing was set up so that there was this park across the street, but to get to the convention center, all the NRA convention goers sort of had to walk around the protest on the sides of it. So, so on one side, you know, the NRA people with their big swag bags going in or coming out, they would walk by this, this, uh, the side of protesters and the protesters would just call them names and cuss at them and, and, and then vice versa. I mean, it would go both ways, but I was just thinking like, it's so ineffective. Like that's not going to do anything. What are you and, doing? And, right. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking with, uh, 
I, I bumped into these two guys that that were holding these signs, uh, you know, middle-aged dudes. Uh, their signs said vets for sane, sane gun laws, something like that. And so I was talking with these guys and, and they're both ex army people. And they're like, yeah, we just, you know, there, there's, there's room for discussion here. And, uh, and they're like, you know, talking disrespectfully to people and call them names and stuff isn't going to help. And, and, you know, somebody heard that like, Oh yes, that's how we have to be talking to. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. Let me ask you a final question. Does, um, does being a vet, all right. Like I would say I'm Jewish. So if I, I am Jewish, so I don't always say it. I actually am yeah. Jewish. Um, and if I need to, t- if I need to put on my kind of Jewish hat, I can put on my Jewish hat. If a subject talking to a rabbi or something, I could talk about, you know, chopped liver and the best deli and blah, blah, my bar mitzvah and I'll make a circumcision joke, that whole thing. Does being <laughs> a vet give you something when it comes to interviewing people in any way? Is there a vet card? I don't know. Um, you know, inevitably, inevitably it comes up in, in conversations, but I, I try not to make that my going in position. Um, you know, um, I can't think of many times where, where I've had to, you know, sort of leverage that, uh, intentionally. Um, I suspect that it's probably helped me get some access to certain things from time to time, but, uh, but on the flip side, I, I think that, you know, I, I don't know what, you know, certain institutions, you know, that what, I don't know what, uh, what DOD thinks of me. I don't even know if I have to get into all this on the, maybe it's just cut that part. Right. <laughs> right. I understand that. But you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know, like my peers, like, you know, I, I, do my peer, like the, the guys that I serve with, do they think that, Oh, I can't talk to Brandon now. Cause he's, he's a reporter. <laughs> oh, first of all, that just I mean, being a journalist, period. I still get people saying, I mean, friends will be like, you're not going to write this, right? No. Right. <laughs> Nobody wants to read about your aunt's hysterectomy. Don't worry. It's all good. Right. right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, well, listen, I, uh, I appreciate you doing this. I think your writing is superb. I think you've really covered this well. Um, for someone living, you know, 1,500 miles away, it's been sort of eye-opening and, uh, and enriching. So- Thank you. Last minute for appearing on my mediocre podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, no, this is so cool. Thanks for the invite. I want to thank today's guest, Brandon Lingle, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Brandon on Twitter at Brandon Lingle and read his work in the San Antonio News Express. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this podcast and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding.